0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Here's what it says. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, sanctify us in the truth this morning. Your word is truth. Holy Spirit, illuminate the scriptures for us this morning. Lead us into the truth so that we may glorify Christ in all that we do. We pray this in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Well, this is a weird text. Uh, a little bit different than Genesis. And, and this is, uh, if this is your first time here, what we do here at Del Cero is we preach through books of the Bible. And so uh, I've been preaching through First Thessalonians over the last year or so. Dustin's been preaching through Genesis. Josh has been preaching through First John. And one of the advantages of that, well, I should say the reason we do that is because we believe that the whole Bible is the inspired Word of God. So there are no verses or chapters that that do not have something profitable for us. So we don't skip over verses like this. This is a weird little section of scripture. It'd be a lot easier for me to skip over it. There are plenty of passages in Genesis that would be much easier to skip over. But we don't do that because we aim to preach the whole counsel of God. We do believe that the Holy Scriptures are God-breathed and profitable for us. So as uncomfortable as it makes us to talk about prophecy, here we are. You think it's uncomfortable for you? What about me? Okay. But let me start with a story. Let me start with a story. Let me set the scene. It's a beautiful, clear morning in the spring of 1820. Okay, it's upstate New York. There's a young boy. He's about 14. He's, he's searching for the truth. He's searching for true religion, he knows that all these different Christian denominations have different beliefs, they have disagreements, and, and so he's, he's out in the woods praying to God for an answer on which is the true Christian church. And as he's praying, something happens. Thick darkness surrounds him. His, his tongue is stopped and a great pillar of light descends from the sky. And there appears before him two personages whom he identifies as God the Father and Jesus Christ. And here's what he says now of this experience. He says, no sooner did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I I asked these personages who stood above me in the light, which of all the denominations was right? For at this time, it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong. And which one should I join? I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong." And the personages who addressed me said that all the creeds were an abomination in his sight. That those professors who were were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. The boy takes this into his heart. He returns home. Doesn't speak much about it. In the following years, he receives more visitations from other heavenly beings. An angel visits him multiple times, reveals to him the hiding place of a large collection of gold plates containing accounts of Jesus' travel in the Americas. The angel tells this boy that he's he's been chosen by God to restore the true church on earth. Later, he's visited by John the Baptist, commissioned as a prophet, and throughout the rest of his life, he receives all sorts of revelations from God, including Such things that he should marry many women and that his first wife does not have a say in this. Now, if you know that story sounds a little bit familiar, you may know that that's the story of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. Self-proclaimed prophet and revelator of God, a seer. And to this day, Mormons believe that there is a living prophet in Salt Lake City. Russell Nelson currently, who claims to have a direct prophetic connection to God. Now, judging by the fact that you're here this morning, and not in the Mormon ward down the street, I'll assume that you don't believe these things are true. You don't believe that these men are true prophets of God, and you don't believe their prophecies or any of their doctrines. You don't believe their visions. But why? And on what basis do we reject their testimony? It's good to reject it, but why? We need to know why. Because in today's world, as just as it was in the times of the Bible, there is no shortage of prophets and prophecies. Again, on what basis do we claim as false the prophecies and visions of men like Joseph Smith, Muhammad, Benny Hinn, Mary Baker Eddy, Charles Taze Russell of Jehovah's Witnesses, all of them claiming to have direct revelations from God all of them proclaiming some version of Jesus. All of them proclaiming to be the one true way to God. And we reject them all. Why? Our text this morning addresses these and many other issues. Now, this morning's text is, is essentially the end of 1 Thessalonians. We'll do one more sermon in there in the new year, uh, finishing up uh, th- this book but it's right at the end. So it's after this entire book. And in this last section from verses 12 onward, Paul's been giving these kind of bullet point commands without any context, just bam, 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 things that the Thessalonian church should abide by to be in the will of God, to obey God and to live in peace with one another. He's given them instructions on, on leadership, how to care for one another. Last time we in First Thessalonians, we, we, uh, looked at his commands to rejoice, to pray, to be thankful, things that that we get, but then Paul turns to the work of the spirit and specifically to prophecy and let's just acknowledge that this seems like a little bit of a left turn for us, right i mean we're we're tracking with Paul, okay, rejoice, yep, okay, I got it that yep, rejoice in the Lord, be thankful, okay, I should be thankful, okay, uh, pray, we should pray, that makes sense. Um, do not despise prophecies like what, Paul? What, what does that have to do with any of this? It's a little strange, especially here in First Thessalonians because there's, there's no context. So let me summarize kind of what Paul's doing here in these four verses, these four statements, uh, to, to give us a little framework for how we're going to understand this text. So he lays out in these four verses, and what he's calling for here is balance and discernment. Balance and discernment in regards to the work of the Spirit in the church, balance and discernment. So, we see this. There, at times, um, manifests itself in ways that are uncomfortable to some, even in the Thessalonian church, and maybe overly exciting to others. Prophecy being the main issue here. So, Paul is arguing, again, for balance and discernment. He's saying, don't go to one extreme and disregard or despise prophecy. Don't quench the spirit That's one extreme, so that's one danger over here. If you go there, if you go that way, you risk quenching or stifling the work of the Spirit. But also, here's the other extreme, don't just accept everything as a work of the Spirit. Don't just allow for anything. Don't just affirm anyone who claims to be speaking in the name of God. That's another danger on this side. So don't despise prophecy, but also don't fixate it. Fixate on it and don't allow anything-goes kind of mentality. If you go this way, you'll quench the spirit. If you go this way, you'll end up believing guys like Joseph Smith. And so we want to avoid both extremes. We want to have a a biblical balance. Or to use an illustration from Martin Luther, one I think of often, he says, you don't want to be like a drunk peasant riding a horse. He falls off of one side only to get back on and fall off the other side. Okay, we want to stay upright on the horse. And to do this, Paul gives us five commands. Just boom, 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 boom here. Two negative commands, don't do this. And then three cause positive commands, do this. And so we'll just go through these, looking at these again, trying to understand how we can be balanced in regards to these things. So number one, right there in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. What does that mean? It means that we're not to... To quench the work of the Holy Spirit. And this word that's translated quench here in the ESV uh, is a Greek word that's, it's the word that's used for extinguishing a candle uh, or, or putting out a fire. And so we're not to try and extinguish or to put out the work of the Spirit. That's what's in view here. It's not the, the person of the Holy Spirit. You're not going to accidentally kill the Holy Spirit, Okay. Uh, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit is doing, we don't want to snuff out the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's interesting to think about this text, kind of taken in its opposite, means that we we can, if we're not careful, stifle or quench the work that the Spirit is doing. Paul's saying here, don't do that. So, in what ways might we do that? Obviously, that sounds like a horrible thing. We don't want to do that. We we want to aid the Spirit's working. What are we to avoid if we don't want to quench the Spirit? Well, the most direct way is found in verse 20. Do not despise prophecies, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But quenching the Spirit is is a larger, more general category, and despising prophecies is a specific application of it. Let's not rush ahead to that. What What are some of the ways that we might stifle or suppress the work of the Spirit? That word is never really used in Scripture of the Holy Spirit anywhere else. Uh, other than here in Ephesians, Paul says you can grieve the Spirit, but that's, that's a bit different. Um, so what are these ways? Well, let's, let's kind of use our biblical imagination to think about this. What does the Bible tell us is the work of the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit doing? We don't want to quench his work. Let's just understand what he does and not stop that. Well, he's indwelling us. He's sanctifying us individually, corporately he's edifying and building the church. He's filling and aiding us in our prayers. So when we either on purpose or on accident oppose this type of work, we're suppressing the work of the Spirit. So there's other things that we know. We know that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. So when you or I are feeling conviction over some sin, some action, some thought, we can basically have two choices. We can repent, we can confess, or we can do just what this verse is talking about, squish that feeling down, snuff out what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in us. We know, when we know that the godly response in a certain situation is this and we actively choose something else, we are working against the Holy Spirit. We're quenching the work of the Spirit. When you feel God prompting you to share the gospel with someone, to pray for someone, and you know this experience and you get nervous, so you kind of just squish that feeling down. No, it's fine. It's probably just my own head. It's very possible that you're stifling the work of the Spirit as he seeks to guide you. We also quench the Spirit when we, when we quench the Word, We know that the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to shape us. And so when we refuse the Word or we close our Bible and leave it on the shelf, we are stifling the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, either individually, as a family, or as a church. Fathers, if you're refusing to open the Bibles in your home with your children, with your wife, refusing to pray for whatever reason, you're stifling the work of the spirit in your home. If we refuse to preach the text and, and instead resorted to preaching our own ideas and our own fancies, we're stifling the work of the spirit in the church. In the same way, when you come to church, knowing that the spirit speaks through his word, but you close your ears, you scroll on your phone, you check out, you're suppressing, you're quenching the work of the spirit. And again, this applies just as, as much to us as a group than it, as it does to us as individuals. When we neglect or reject the very means by which God has told us the Holy Spirit works to transform us, we're in danger of quenching the Spirit. So let's start there. Let's not be a church like that. Instead of quenching the work of the Spirit, we should do what Paul says to Timothy, fan into flame the work of the Spirit. That is Paul's general statement. Now, Paul has something specific in mind. These these are all connected. This is basically one complicated sentence in Greek. He has something specific in mind for the Thessalonian church when he's talking about not quenching the Spirit. And this is what he says in the next verse. Do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. Now, this is where it gets interesting and very controversial. So I'm sure some of you will be upset no matter what I say this morning. But let me just say, this area of, of biblical prophecy is extremely complicated and it's, it's murky. This is why there are Bible scholars disagree on almost every aspect of it. And so this morning is not going to be a full-length expose on all, all of what the Bible has to say about prophecy, but we do need to go into some depth to, to try to figure out what, what does it mean to despise prophecy, I don't want to do that. Paul says not to do it. I don't want to do it. So how do I make sure I'm not doing that? Part of the problem here, part of the difficulty is the nature of prophecy. It, in scripture, it's a mysterious kind of thing that's hard to figure out. And I think oftentimes we, just, we want everything to fit nicely into little theological boxes and categories. And it just doesn't always work like that. The Bible doesn't always accommodate us like that. So let's, let's try to figure this out. Let's look, let's look first at the word despise. Okay, we'll look at that. Whatever a prophecy is, that was good timing. Uh, whatever a prophecy is, they, we are not to despise them. Now, despise kind of has in English, I think, a, an emotional content to it. It sounds like hate, don't hate prophecies. But uh, in Greek, it's more the idea of rejection um, or, or looking down upon. So, in other words, the Thessalonian church was not to reject prophecies as unworthy of consideration. It's not to treat them with contempt. They were not to just reject prophecy out of hand. Rather, look at the next verse, they were to test them, to examine them, and to hold on to what was good and reject what was bad. So, for example, if someone came to the church and said, I have a prophecy, let me share it with you, to despise it would be to say, We don't do prophecy here, you freak. Go down to the church, down the street. That's to despise it, to look down on it, to not even give it a consideration. They were instead to say, let us hear it and we'll examine it. We'll hold on to what's good. We'll reject what's evil. Now that's kind of the, e- the easy part. What is prophecy in this context? That's a million dollar question. This is the question that books and tomes and debates and YouTube videos have been made about for a long time. How you answer this question determines how this verse applies today and how it applied to the Thessalonian church. So what is prophecy? Well, maybe a basic definition is something like this. It's, it's something that's spoken or sung or prayed in regards to some type of divine revelation. Now, that's, that's a really general definition. But let's, let's look into Scripture and see and try to get an understanding of some of the things that prophets and prophecies do. So let's talk Old Testament first. Now, obviously there are a ton of prophets in the Old Testament who prophesy. Um, Abraham is called a prophet. We'll see that soon in in Genesis. Moses is called a prophet. Uh, Elijah is a prophet. Isaiah, all the names of the babies at the church, okay? Zephaniah, uh, Daniel, we've got all the prophets here. We still need some priests, but we've got all the prophets. Could use some kings too. Uh, If you need names, I have a lot of name ideas for you. Um, now notice this, first of all, all these ministries of these various prophets and there are many more, obviously all look very different. So the ministry of Moses does not look like the ministry of Elijah. The ministry of Abraham does not look like the ministry of Asaph. They all look different. They all do kind of different things. And yet they're all prophets and prophesy takes many forms. There are men that are prophets in the Old Testament, there are female prophets in the Old Testament, Deborah and Huldah and some others. Now, all of these are kind of in the category of prophets of God, true prophets, prophets of Yahweh. But also in the Old Testament, there are a ton of false prophets. We saw that in the Jeremiah reading. There are those in the Old Testament who are prophets for other gods. Think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And then we have prophets who claim to be speaking for God, but are false prophets. Like Jeremiah said, God says, I didn't send them. I don't know who they're speaking for. So there's all sorts of false prophets as well. We also have strange passages like 1 Samuel 10, and I have this here on the screen, that indicate like there's groups of prophets that just roam around singing. So 1 Samuel 10, chapter 5, uh, verse 5. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Okay, so whatever prophecy is, it has to include, uh, at least as one possible form of it, some type of singing and instruments. We see some, some indications in Scripture as well that songwriting can be a prophetic function. The Psalms are prophetic in nature, in Second Chronicles 29, uh, it says this: Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer, which is another word for prophet. And they sang praise with gladness. They bowed down and worshipped. So we see one of the prophets, one of the seers, meaning he saw visions. Asaph wrote a lot of the psalms. These are prophecies. They're songs. They're prophecies. They're both. So again, we see that this prophecy is taking on many different forms. It's not simply just someone standing up and saying, Thus saith the Lord, although that does happen. Some prophets preached repentance, tried to get the people to turn back to God. Some prophets had ministries of, of edifying God's people through song, like Asaph. Some preached impending judgment. Some were like lawyers, like Isaiah, like lawyers, levying cases against God's people for their sins. Some, like Elijah and Micah, counseled kings and queens. Some foretold the future and prophesied of the coming Messiah. Some simply helped explain the word of God to their people. Some wrote inspired scripture, but many did not. There are many more prophets in the Old Testament that we don't have much account of, other than they were walking around prophesying. But all of them mediated God's word to his people in some form or fashion. All of their ministries looked very different, but one characteristic is the same. They all claimed to speak for God and delivered messages or songs on his behalf to the people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Especially in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well, the Spirit is always linked to true prophecy. True prophecy is also always linked to the words of God. But then the prophets get silent and so we have this kind of this time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now it's not as if God has just disappeared, uh, but there's no scripture being written. There's nothing going on that we have an inspired account of until John the Baptist comes on the scene. What is John? He's a prophet. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. His ministry was to prepare the way, to prepare the people for the coming of Messiah, for the coming of the true and the greatest prophet, Jesus the Christ. When Christ comes, the scriptures tell us he fulfills the the prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15, which he said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's the perfect spokesman for God. He preaches. He communicates God's word to his people. He dies. He's buried. On the third day, he rises again. He ascends into heaven. But before he does that, you think of Acts chapter 1. He gets his little band of disciples. He tells them to go into Jerusalem and to wait. To wait for what? To wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So they do. And there in the upper room, the Holy Spirit comes in power, and what happens? They all begin to speak miraculously in different languages, and what are they talking about when they're doing that? Acts 2 tells us, they, they heard them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. So as they're, they're prophesying, in a sense, what they're doing is telling about the mighty works of God. This outpouring of the Spirit, this ministry of the Spirit, was to testify to the greatness of Christ. It was to testify that now is the time of repentance, to turn back to Christ. So Christ fulfills this office of the prophet, but he does not end it. It kind of seems like, based on his fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, he should have been the last prophet, but he's not. And how do we know that? Because we have the rest of the book of Acts. And all throughout Acts, there are still prophets and prophecies. We see the Spirit working through prophecy to do all sorts of things. Acts 13, we see the Spirit work through prophecy to send people to the mission field. It says this, Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, okay, so they, they weren't reading this somewhere, the Holy Spirit said to them, presumably through a prophet, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on him and sent him off. We see prophecy function as well to better help the church care for the poor. This is an interesting one in Acts 11. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. Again, here's these groups of prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. It took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, based on this prophecy, that everyone according to his ability should send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. It's interesting. We also see how these, these statements like this that don't give us much context again, but that there are women who prophesy. Acts 21, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, the guy from Acts chapter 8, who was one of the seven, one of the original deacons, stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Again, just a verse that just says they prophesied. What does that mean? Doesn't say. And that's what's so frustrating about this. That's what's so hard about defining prophecy is we have a lot of statements like this where it just says, well, there were prophets in the church. And Philip's daughters prophesied. Well, wonderful. What were they doing? The text doesn't say. Paul gives us lots of instructions in 1 Corinthians about how to organize and manage prophecy, about what to wear on your head when you're doing it, if you're a man or a woman, but he doesn't say what it is that they're doing. I guess the answer would be obvious to him. Well, they're prophesying. Thanks. When we get into 1 Corinthians, we do get a little more information by way of implication. So we see and we know because of what Paul says that the gift of prophecy has been given to the church for the edification of the church. So Romans 12, we get this list, it's, it's in, actually prophecy is the only spiritual gift that's in every single one of the lists throughout scripture, which is interesting. Romans 12 says this, "'For as in one body we have many members "'and the members do not all have the same function.'" Okay, we get that. "'So we, though many, are one body in Christ.'" and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So God has given us all different gifts. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. So prophecy is a gift, a gift of grace given to the church to be used in proportion to our faith. And probably the best way to understand that is the faith, in proportion to the faith. We'll talk about that a little bit later. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul talking about the ministry of prophecy on the other hand the one who prophesies here he's, he's going to give us a little bit of this is what it does the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation okay get a little bit more context here the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church so prophecy whatever it is whatever form it might take That's what it's trying to do. It's trying to build up the church. Now, obviously, right there, much of what goes on in the name of prophecy today is not doing that. Okay? It's glorifying the prophet, not the church. We'll talk about that later. But we're also told at some point, 1 Corinthians 13, that the gift of prophecy will cease. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Okay, now obviously that's a hugely debated verse about what that means, but let's summarize. So, prophecy in the New Testament now in the church is, is a gift given to the church by God, inspired by the Spirit for the upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation of his people. And it usually takes place through speaking. That's what Paul said, speaking to one another, although, again, sometimes possibly through singing or some other forms. So here's the big question, and here's the the big debate. Is that still happening today? Is Is the gift of prophecy still in operation? Depends how you define it. This is where things get all weird and murky. But if we read the scriptures and we read them closely and we pay attention to church history as well, we have to say, I believe, that it is still in operation in some form or fashion today. Please note the qualifier, in some form. Clearly, clearly, the inerrant scripture writing type of prophecy ceased with the apostles. But as we've seen from the Bible, prophecy is not less than that, but it is more than that. And so what I believe we are to remain open to is the work of the Spirit and exactly what Paul says, encouraging, exhorting, consoling one another. That is what prophecy is doing in the church, not revealing new doctrines or novel teachings. That's not what prophecy is in the New Testament. Now still, that probably makes some of you very uncomfortable, makes me uncomfortable. In one sense, it's much easier to just say prophecy just doesn't exist anymore that would that's really clean. That's really easy. Nope, it's all done. But the problem with that is that renders us very very open to doing what this verse says not to do. Do not despise prophecies. Do not just quench the spirit. So let me let me make a couple of arguments again. There is so much on the subject that we need to talk about, but let me just make some arguments on why I think it's existing, operating in some form or fashion today. Super summary form, so probably very unsatisfying. Number one, there's no clear indication, obviously this is debated, but there's no clear indication, I believe, in the New Testament that prophecy has ceased. And I've read the books on it. It's clear to me that First Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, is saying that prophecy and knowledge will cease when the perfect comes. It's not talking about the formation of the canon or the scriptures, but when Christ returns. Christ is the perfect. When Christ returns, we no longer need any of these things because, like 1 John 3 says, we'll be made like him, we'll know all things, we'll no longer see through a glass darkly, but face to face. Amen. <laughs> that was cute. Uh, Number two, saying prophecy has ceased without any qualifications. This conversation is all about qualifications. Saying prophecy has ceased without any qualifications leaves one open to committing the very thing this verse is talking about again. Do not despise prophecy. If you say prophecy has ceased, by nature you will reject it out of hand and look down upon it because you believe it ceased. You're very liable and possible to quench the spirit with a mindset like that that makes me very nervous i don't want to do that i don't want to accidentally oppose something the holy spirit is doing there's also verses paul 1 corinthians 14 eagerly desire that you might prophesy another verse that if you say it doesn't happen anymore you have to reject that verse is completely irrelevant to us today i'm not comfortable with that but number three, we also have some really interesting evidence from the early church. Now, again, I don't have time to go into all this, but suffice it to say, prophecy was alive and well for at least the, three, the first 300 years of the church. You can read the church fathers. They talk about prophets going around and prophesying. They talk about a lot of movements that arose around false prophets. But what's interesting is the church fathers, as they're writing against and refuting these false prophetic movements, The argument that they never make is, well, don't you know that prophecy has ceased, so obviously this is a false argument. Their argument is, that's obviously untrue because it doesn't fit with the scriptures and we have the true prophets. Now again, the classic response to this is, well, okay, buddy boy, if there's prophecy and it's inspired by the Spirit, and if it's inspired by the Spirit, then it's inerrant, so we better add it to the scriptures. But that's a really bad argument because that's not how prophecy functioned in the New Testament church. We have record of that. The apostles wrote scriptures. They fulfilled that prophetic scripture writing function. But just as in the Old Testament, there are various kinds and levels of prophets who never wrote scripture. Most of all the prophets in the New Testament never wrote scripture. We don't have a, a, a book of Agabus or a book of uh, Philip's daughters. That's not what they were doing when they were prophesying. We know that prophecies we just saw, was a regular, cur- a regular occurrence in the church at Corinth, and nowhere do we read of them writing it down as scripture. We don't have any books in the Bible uh, written by any other prophets other than the apostles and their, uh, their uh, buddies. Can't think of the technical term. The only prophets attempting to add to scripture are false ones, like Joseph Smith or Muhammad. So in some forms, prophecy is still happening. Now, I don't know how much. I don't know how often. I think a lot of the times it's a language game. You may acknowledge that something happened, the spirit moved in some way, and you just don't like calling it prophecy because that makes you nervous. That's okay. But it still is functioning under that biblical category. D.A. Carson sums this up really well. He's a theologian. He sums up this tension. Listen to what he says. This is brilliant. He says, One begins to suspect then that prophecy may occur more often than is recognized in non-charismatic circles like ours and probably less often than is recognized in charismatic circles. In other words, what he's saying is in churches like ours, probably there are things that go on that are prophetic in nature that we just don't call it that. And he says likewise in the charismatic churches, there's a lot that goes on that's called prophetic in nature that also is not that. He, He gives some examples of what this might look like. He says, what preacher has not had the experience after detailed preparation for public ministry of being interrupted in the full flow of his delivery with a new thought fresh and powerful only to find after the service that the insertion of that thought was the very bit that seemed to touch the most people. That's the spirit working through us. I've had that experience and I'm sure many of you have as well. Maybe you've been moved to pray for someone at a specific time. They just come to your mind and just feel like, okay, I'll pray for them. And then you come to find out later at that exact time they were going through something they needed prayer for. These are things that are still operating in the church. Another example of what this might look like, this this was something that happened to me. I was visiting a friend's church once a a long time ago. Uh, It was like a worship night or something and, and standing there singing, an older woman uh, came up to me who I'd never met and, and simply said, God told me to pray for you. Um, now here, I had, a, I had a choice here. I could despise it and just say, no thanks, God doesn't speak to people like that. That would be to despise it, to reject it out of hand. I simply said, okay, I mean, I'm always welcome for prayer. I was, a, I was a little uncomfortable. She proceeded to pray for me very sweetly. Very Christ-focused, encouraging prayer, and also very specific to things I was going through at the time that ministered to my heart greatly. Very sp- Things that, again, she wouldn't know, not like specific people's names, but specific enough that it, test- it-, it encouraged my heart. And what I experienced in that moment is exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14, consolation, encouragement towards Christ. That is the effect that Paul says prophecy should have. Now again, there are many more examples like this. There are things that go on that are moves of the Spirit that are inexplainable uh, in in normal terms. You've probably all heard the stories of of Muslims seeing visions and dreams of Jesus. Now again, there's a tension here because some people just reject that out of hand. Nope, God doesn't do that. That is really close, if not what Paul's talking about here, to just despising prophecies. Listen to one account of this. This this writer writes A friend of mine tells of a Persian migrant who arrived at a refugee center at 6 a.m., visibly upset. He told his story to a Persian pastor. During the night, he saw someone dressed in white raise his hand and say, Stand up and follow me. The Persian man said, Who are you? The man in white replied, I am the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the way to heaven. No one can go to the Father except through me. He began to ask the Persian pastor, who is this man? What am I going to do? Why did he ask me to follow him? How shall I go? Tell me. Talk about an open opportunity for evangelism. In response, the pastor held out his Bible and asked, have you seen this before? The man said, no. He said, do you know what it is? He said, no. The pastor then opened the book to Revelation and read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The man started crying and said, how can I accept him? How can I follow him? So the pastor led him in prayer. Peace came over him. Pastor gave him a Bible, told him to hide it since the Muslims in the camps could cause him trouble. But the man replied, the Jesus that I met today, he's more powerful than the Muslims in the camp. He left and an hour later returned with 10 more people and said, they want Bibles too. No one had to to teach him evangelism. Okay, so what is your reaction to a story like that? You can just reject it, say, nope, God doesn't do that anymore. That's despising the work of the Spirit. Now, you could also just uncritically accept, accept it. That's also not wise. That's also not wise. Remember, what Paul is calling for here is a biblical balance and discernment. What is the outcome of this work of the Spirit? People coming to faith in Jesus. That sounds like the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if it turned out the next day they all went back to Islam, okay, that wasn't a work of the Spirit. But that's why we need to be biblically informed, maybe what I would call a healthy, biblical, informed skepticism. That's the balance that Paul gives us here. So that's what we're not to do. We're not to just despise, reject out of hand these prophecies. Or we might be in danger of quenching the Spirit. But at the same time, so that's one extreme, at the same time, At the same time, we must be absolutely careful and cautious and discerning. Now, how do we do that? How do we avoid these two extremes? Paul's answer is right here in the text. Test everything. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You see, Paul knows that some people in Thessalonica were nervous about prophecy and its potential abuses, and rightfully so. There's... there's some evidence in, in 2 Thessalonians that there were people f- falsely prophesying in the Thessalonian church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, uh, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you. Okay, so Paul's saying this, there seems to be people In the Thessalonian church, that are are saying, Oh, the day of the Lord has come, the day of the Lord has come, in the spirit, maybe, claiming to be speaking for God, Paul says, Don't let them alarm your faith. So, some people speculating in, in reaction to that said, Okay, no more prophecy. Paul says, Don't do that. That's not the answer. The answer is test everything, examine everything, keep what is good, get rid of the bad. And that's what this word here for test means. It means to examine something. It comes, actually, this word derives from uh, the, the work of the money changers. It means to examine something to see if it's genuine, to see if it's genuine or a counterfeit. The early church actually had a saying. They said, we should all be good money changers. And in other words, we should all have skills of discernment to know what is from God and what is not. So how do we do that? How do we test prophecies? How do we examine a prophecy uh, or, or anything Paul says, "Test everything. How do we examine anything? Now this he doesn't give us a rubric here, but we can discern from the rest of Scripture some reliable ways to test if something is genuinely from God or not. Number one, we test it by everything. We test everything by its faithfulness to Scripture. If a prophecy or a teaching or a sermon or a book is not in line with Scripture, it's not from God. We don't need to go any further. The Holy Spirit has given us the inerrant word, and he does not and will not contradict himself. My favorite summary of this idea comes from the Baptist Confession of 1689. Listen to how they put this. It's such a masterful paragraph. This is what it says The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, private spirits are to be examined. And in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scripture, delivered by the Spirit, into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. Amen. Hallelujah. The Scriptures are how we judge these things. So how do we know that the prophecies of Joseph Smith, Muhammad, are false? They don't follow the Scriptures. They're not faithful to the Scriptures. They are, in the words of Deuteronomy, leading us after another God. So we reject them. Each of these men taught a heretical gospel, a false gospel, a false version of Jesus, a false version of God, because they were false prophets. The Mormon missionaries who knock on your door, what they will want to do is to ask you, well, why don't you just read the Book of Mormon and pray if it's true? Your response should be, I don't need to pray if it's true. It doesn't align with Scripture. There's no other further thing I need to do. When someone comes to you testifying that they speak for God and they disagree with the word of God, it's a very clear test that they are not from God. First John gives specific testimony to this. Exact same idea in 1 John chapter 4. Gives a little bit more clarity on what this test might look like. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit, same word, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. So we must reject any prophet, prophecy, any spirit, any so-called prophet, as John says, who does not have a biblical, orthodox understanding of who Jesus is. Joseph Smith fails that test. Muhammad fails that test. All the other cults, all the other religions fail that test. They are not speaking from God. According to John, it's not the Holy Spirit that's speaking through these men, but it is a spirit. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. And he says, beware, there are many false prophets in the world. So the test is biblical, doctrinal. But it's not only that. There's also a moral test. If anyone claims to be speaking from God and leads you into sin or sensuality or themselves lead a light of sin or sensuality, they are to be rejected. One of the marks of a false prophet in the letters of the New Testament, 2 Peter, Jude, is that they're constantly leading people into sin. That's what they're trying to do. So they might sound something like, well, we know that the Bible says that's a sin, but I have a revelation from God that it's not a sin anymore. You're welcome to it. Why don't you come over to our club and you can sin to your heart's content? That's a false prophet, a false prophecy. The Bible not only teaches us who God is, but how to live to please Him. If anyone claims that they speak for God and that they can change this or they have a different message, they are not from God. So we test all things by the Scripture. We can also test prophecy by Paul's test in 1 Corinthians 14. Is it edifying? Is it comforting? Is it encouraging to the church? Does it point us to Christ? Does it glorify Christ or does it point away from Christ? If it points away from Christ, if it steals glory from Christ, if it fixates on itself, get rid of it. This is how the early church fathers judge prophecies. They would examine the life of the prophet. And again, they would say, a true prophet, someone who speaks from God, leads a gentle, quiet, holy, and humble life. So already if someone's not like that, they're not a prophet. They don't speak from God. They would also say, people do not prophesy when asked, but only when God moves. So if there's a prophet who says, you know, Let, give me your questions. I'll prophesy about something you want. They say false prophet automatically. They also say a true prophet, true prophecy never asks for money. I love that. Even in the early church, there were grifters, you know, saying, mm, yes, I'm speaking from God. Give me $20. They said that's automatic, automatic disqualify, disqualifier for a prophet. They also said that uh, in the spirit, someone speaking in the spirit, prophesying, never asks for anything that benefits themselves. okay? Again, true prophecy from the spirit of God is all about Jesus. It's not about anything else. They even said, I love this, uh, the Didache, which is an early church document from around 100 AD, says, if someone claims to be in the spirit, and then orders food for themselves, they're not a true prophet, which is really funny. Uh, mm, yes, I have a word from the Lord, bring me a cheeseburger. Uh, no, that doesn't happen. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, again says true prophecy is never out of control, it's never ecstatic, but rather controlled. They would say any prophecy that glorifies the person giving it is not of God. Any prophecy that draws attention to itself and away from Christ is not of God. These are some of the things that church fathers talked about. And this, of course, applies to more than just prophecy, doesn't it? This applies just as much to preaching. Don't believe something just because one of us says it from the pulpit. Believe it because it's faithful to the scriptures. That's why we preach the scriptures. That's why even when we disagree on things like that, where do we go to have our disagreement? To the scriptures. That's why we examine and test all of the songs we sing before we sing them. We don't just sing something because it's on the radio. We don't just sing songs because some popular group wrote it or because it's got a nice melody or it's a catchy tune or because it makes us feel good inside. No, we test our songs by this same rubric. We sing what we know to be true and faithful to the Scriptures, to be edifying to the church. We sing songs that that point glory to Christ, to glorify God and not ourselves. So brothers and sisters, quenching the Spirit And despising prophecies are not Christian virtues, but neither are gullibility and naivete. There are false prophecies, many, the Bible says, and many false prophets in our world, many false teachers, many false gospels out there. And we must be on our guard. We must be watchful. But we must not throw the baby out with the bathwater. We must constantly be testing and examining all things through the lens of the scripture. The scriptures and the scripture alone are what protect us from both extremes. It's the scriptures that equip us to be those good money changers, able to tell what is genuine from counterfeit. And so Paul continues, test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now again, these are all in relation to the same thing, test all things, and having examined them, keep the good stuff, get rid of the bad. Hold fast to that which is genuinely from the Spirit, and stay away from that which is not from the Holy Spirit. Hold fast to the faith. Hold fast to what glorifies Christ, and run far away from what doesn't. We are to cling, in other words, to the biblical orthodox faith found in the scriptures and summarized in the creeds. And this word, hold fast, it's it's always used in Scripture uh, of, of the faith, of doctrine, of, of the faith that's been passed down to us. Paul uses it in Hebrews ten twenty three. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. What Paul has in mind here is perseverance. Hold fast to what is good. Don't be led astray by some false doctrine, false prophecy. Hold fast to the truth. Abstain from all that bad stuff. And yet at the same time, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies. Biblical balance and discernment. Persevere in the truth. Cling to the good. Abstain from the bad, no matter what form it takes. Hold fast to the genuine. Get rid of the counterfeits. We have nothing to do with these counterfeit movements. Some Christians have practiced no discernment with these counterfeit movements and read their books and watch their videos and they're happy about it. Some... Some uh, aren't aware enough. We're not to affirm them as good or true. That is what it means to abstain. We're not to be led astray into believing them. uh, We are to evangelize them, not to affirm them in their faith, their false faith. And again, there are many out there, Mormonism, Islam, the Mother God folks, Jehovah's Witnesses, all sorts of false prophets on TV and on and on and on. On the streets, college campuses especially on the internet, constantly trying to convince Christians to abandon the faith, constantly trying, as Second Peter says, to bring in destructive heresies and to lure Christians away into a lie. Many of you, I'm sure, have had the experience of having a friend who got caught up in some YouTube rabbit hole and, was, and succumbed to some type of false teaching. We must be vigilant and watchful, not naive and gullible, And we are to do this, Paul says, to hold fast to sound doctrine, to hold fast to truth, to abstain from falsehood and error and wickedness, not by rejecting prophecies, but by testing and examining them. By testing and examining them, by testing and examining all things through the lens of Holy Scripture. That is what Paul's getting at here. May God give us the discernment, the wisdom, the faith, The watchfulness to do this in a way that glorifies him. And may Christ, the true and greatest prophet, be glorified in all that we do. Let's pray.